Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. Is the city of Seattle headed in a new direction with a new senior deputy mayor? That's one news item we'll discuss as we cover what happened this week. As we do, I've got my panel of journalists with me, political analyst and contributing columnist, Joni Balter. Welcome back. Hi there. Publicola co-founder and editor, Erica Barnett. Welcome back, Erica. Thanks, Bill. And the author of the Wild West newsletter on Substack, and also the Gates Scholar at the UW School of Law, Eli Sanders. Good to see you again. Nice to be back, Bill. Yeah, nice to have you. Let's discuss what happened this week. Investigators are trying to figure out what happened to an ocean submersible built by an Everett company. The vessel was carrying its pilot and four paying passengers toward the wreckage of the Titanic when it imploded, killing all five people aboard. The pilot was Stockton Rush, the founder and CEO of that Everett company, Ocean Gate Expeditions. Rush had been pretty open about not adhering to all the industry standards for deep diving crafts. Uh, Joni, we'll start with you. What's the lesson? Oh, my. What's the lesson? Well, I want to start by saying, you know, first and foremost, uh, big condolences to the family and of of all these folks, I mean, what a tragedy! The one one thing I read that just really stayed with me is that the 19 year old Pakistani traveler uh, was terrified of this trip, didn't mm-hmm. want to go, but because it was Father's Day and his dad was pressuring him, um, agreed to go. So that just kind of. As for the lesson, I mean, there are so many lessons and even more questions here if you think about it. Uh, you know, why didn't um, the folks at, at at the company Ocean Gate, why didn't they listen to some of their critics? You should always listen to people who actually worked for you and saw problems and documented them because they will, can come back to haunt you. Why not listen to that? There was even a trade group that raised concerns. But, you know, sometimes... Um, Folks are just such a hurry to go do the adventure. Yeah. Uh, I should wh- say, uh, to let listeners know, a former Ocean Gate Expeditions employee sued them uh, five years ago, claiming that the company ignored warnings that the this vessel, the Titan, was potentially unsafe. He was subsequently fired. That's correct. So there were suits and countersuits, but... You know, there were several folks who said you really have to check the integrity of the vessel to make sure it, it can withstand that huge amount of pressure. And I just think— Over and over, not over, on more than one More mission. than once, and, you know, sort of a we know better, which is, you know, never good when you're—you know, I don't want to just sit here and, bl- and blame these folks because we actually don't know the answer to exactly what happened. That's right. But I think we can ask tons and tons of different questions. Yeah. Uh, uh, another, you know, like, you know, why not take another um, safety check? Why not talk to a few more people? Yeah. But hindsight's really good at that, as mm-hmm. you all know. And, and so you just want to be careful you don't sort of do that. One other thing that I just find, you know, shivers down the back is the story of the CEO's wife. Her name is Wendy Rush. And, it, you know, it's been reported a couple places that her great, great grandparents perished on the original Titanic, and they, of course, were going down to see uh, the ship that uh, ocean pressures are making it harder and harder to be able to see that because less less of it will be left. Mm-hmm. I just find that, oh my gosh. Yeah. Erica, what did you take away here? I mean, my takeaway was that this is just such a story of hubris. Um, this, uh, the CEO of, uh, I mean, we don't need to know the full outcome of the investigation to know that the CEO said that, you know, innovation is, you know, the or regulation is the enemy of innovation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we don't need a bunch of 50-something-year-old guys around like, like himself. Uh, we need a lot of young innovators and... That, you know, that that if he succumbed to the regulatory state like everybody else, he wouldn't be able to do these exciting expeditions. And, you know, I mean, I, I thought immediately of Elon Musk's rockets, you know, exploding in midair. And, you know, those aren't um, we're not putting people into, you know, outer space on those rockets yet. But I, I think that there's, a you know, a lesson that Musk and people like that probably won't take that, you know, 
people, expertise is valuable and experience is valuable. And listening to the people who know what the hell they're talking about is uh, is actually important. And when you're putting people's lives at risk, um, as this you know CEO knew he was doing or had to have known, um, you know it's uh, it, it's hard to I don't know. It's just it's hard for me to muster a ton. I, I have a tremendous empathy for their families, but it's hard to muster a ton of empathy for someone who. You know, who who knew he was putting people at risk and said that the, you know, reward, the adventure, the adrenaline was more important. This week, even after this accident, a co-founder of this Everett company, um, Ocean Gate Expeditions, told the BBC that technology and innovation can outpace regulation, that developers are in a better position to understand and minimize risks, and that anyone who operates in the deep ocean, quote, knows the risk of operating under such pressure, and that any given moment, you run the risk of this kind of implosion. Eli, what what were your thoughts? Well, we hear that argument all the time from industries that don't want to be regulated. That's the argument being made by tech companies about AI right now, that they understand it better than regulators in D.C. That was an argument made about social media, just to bring up some current examples. And we've seen some of the outcomes when uh, industry keeps regulators at arm's length. In this case, you have a person who was – the speculation is that he was intentionally – selling these trips in international waters in part to avoid regulation. He obviously had a feeling about regulation hindering innovation. And, you know, from my perspective, that's his right. But when he's selling tickets, expensive tickets, $250,000 to go down there, you do have some responsibility to your clients. And then there's also... I should say we don't know that these passengers didn't know everything that Rush knew about skirting industry standards and and all that. We don't know. True. And there's been a lot of reporting about the long, um, I think the quote was like, toe-curling release that you have to sign. The waivers. Yeah. Yeah. But the other um, piece of this is the expense of the search and the effort to um, respond to this disaster, which, you know, by a lot of accounts was predictable. And so, you know, when you have an innovator saying, government, get out of my way, I know best, I'm going to go and do these tours, even though I'm being told by industry and, uh, well, at least the industry and maybe regulators too, that they're dangerous. So the equipment needs to be certified. Uh, And then, when things go horribly wrong, tragically wrong for everyone involved, uh, the government is on the hook for the expense of responding. Is that fair? Well, and and there's, you know, this has been pointed out a lot. This is not, a, you know, an original observation by me. But, you know, you compare that to the tragedy in which, you know, hundreds of, of migrants um, died off the coast of Greece. And, you know, Greece sort of, you know, washed its hands of it. And, you know, it, it, it does begin to feel as if, uh, you know, billionaires' lives have more value than, uh, than the lives of these, of these migrants who died, um, including all the women and children on board that ship. Yeah, I got an email on those lines from a listener who said, where's the, where's the urgency to make that uh, trip safer? Yes, Joni. No, I was just simply going to say that, um, you know, I, I, while we do this, we should also remember that, you know, it's part of our nature to want to be adventurers and want to explore. And yet all these questions that we're asking are totally fair game. Who pays for it? You know, you avoided the regulations, but then you called the same governments in to, you didn't directly call, you couldn't, but I wonder if you could have said, look, I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to follow the rules and don't bother searching. This is one thing that occurred to me last night. I was thinking about this kind of balance sheet that people are doing in the wake of this that, you know, you got to avoid regulation, but the government had to pick up the tab for the mess. Um, and maybe that's that's an alternative in the future, that that the owner of this service and everyone who uh, takes him or her up on it says, you know, not only am I signing this huge release, but I also expressly say that I don't want any uh, taxpayer-funded entity to come to my rescue. How about people who ski in the back country of the country? Yeah. Also, I was just going to say, this comes up in, in when mountaineers who are not experienced go up to Mount Rainier. You know, they just arrived from some other place. Maybe they did or didn't understand the challenges. But then, you know, taxpayer-funded entities have to go in, helicopters, this, that, small planes, to kind of rescue these folks. 
So we really, we really do need to kind of figure that out. Maybe, maybe that's a solution. Sign away. Add another page. Well, I mean, I think, <laughs> add another I think page to the toe that curling. Lies, that way lies chaos, and you know, and the ultimate libertarian state. And, mm. and you know, if we actually were to implement that sort of thing, I mean, we do have a moral obligation to try to, you know, to save lives. But it would be. Um, in an ideal world, we would apply that moral obligation equally to uh, to all lives um, that are at risk, including those of migrants um, who we, you know, lock up in jail. Um, but uh, but I but I, I I do think that having people sign a waiver. I mean, I sign stuff all the time online. It's much more trivial. But uh, you know, did they look at and consider, especially a nineteen year old, consider the more the the true implications of every single word of that waiver? Well, that's that's the one of the things that bothers me the most. Did you all see what uh, Titanic director James Cameron said about this? He said a bunch. What stood well, out I'm to you? Sort, well, I'm sort of you know hung up between this connection of now and historically, and he said he's I'm struck by the similarity of the Titanic disaster itself, where the captain was repeatedly warned about ice ahead of his ship, and yet he steamed at full speed into an ice field. And this first this company was warned. Steam full speed down down as far as they got. Uh, one at least one more thing I wanted to to bring up here. And speaking of stuff we don't know, a lot of local engineers are distancing themselves from this vessel. OceanGate had said on its website that its uh, you know engineers um, worked with Boeing and the University of Washington, applied physics lab, and that those engineers made significant contributions to the Titan's design and construction, but. Those, but the UW and Boeing are denying that. They're saying, "Well, we worked on earlier, some earlier versions. Yeah. You know, a, a, a submersible that was designed for a much shallower depth that has plied Puget Sound, Salish Sea, etc." Um, so I think they'll, but I think there'll be a lot of questions. You know, it's not those those lines are not necessarily so clear. Um, and you heard uh, James Cameron again. I don't know everything. What I don't know the engineering specs, right? But he was. Uh, criticizing just the carbon fiber construction of of a hull that was going to face pressure, repeated pressure, uh, literally pressure, ocean depth pressures that that is not f- faced by flying vehicles. And so, how much did local engineers, you know, who all sort of designed or signed off on the wisdom of this this design? We're going to be hearing a lot about that. And so that pressure was discussed. Uh, described as the weight of an elephant on a on a finger. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of pressure. Anything to add? Do we cover it for now? Just on your question of who signed off, I think that person perished in the in the uh, implosion. It sounds like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it only takes one. Um, you know, sort of. Uh, <laughs> it only takes one libertarian. I'll say. Uh, with uh, with you know who who hates the regulatory state to decide you know that a fatal flaw will not actually be fatal. Yeah, and I I guess I should add that um, you know the fact that there uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if there are people listening who knew Stockton Rush worked with these people the you know the the they live British in Seattle adventure. they live in Seattle they work in Seattle it doesn't change the the question the journalistic questions we're bringing up about. Regulation or um, you know design or any of that, but I imagine there's some real heartbroken people, including people listening to us now, uh, discuss this. What, what you call a tragedy, Joni, and that word is very overused. Sometimes it's just when something sad happens. But I don't know the the the, the motivations and fascinations and parallels here. I think actually qualify it for tragic in some senses. Absolutely. You know, the company is now has a sign on it up in Everett that says closed indefinitely. Right. I mean, this is this is about as local as you can get here. Yeah. And I and I just want to say I don't mean to to diminish the tragedy. I mean, as I said, I think we have a moral obligation as a society to try to save people um, in situations like this when we can. I just think that, you know, there is there is an ideology at play here that um, that played into why this happened. And I think that, you know, it's kind of our job as a society to examine that and say, maybe, you know, maybe we need to have more of a regulatory state when it comes to things that are so life and death and that you can, you know, die in an instant. I mean, there was a description if, if a, you know, the fraction of a hair of, you know, a drop of water gets in, that's it. Yeah. So the risk was so incredibly high. And, you know, when you're talking about the 
uh, eternal spirit of adventure, essentially, and, and that people have done heedless things all the time, and sometimes they go okay and we praise them uh, yeah. for it. The other uh, part of that is when they don't go well, we learn from it. And so that that can be something here, too, that if this was done outside of regulations in that kind of eternal spirit of adventure, you know, risks uh, aside, then there's something probably for people to learn uh, for future adventures about what went wrong here. Yeah. And that's a part of our uh, lots of cities, but really the, the Seattle area, that engineering, pioneering Risk taking for better or for worse. It's a it's a real part of this town. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke with uh, in my panel of journalists here: Erica Barnett, Joni Balter, Eli Sanders, and so we're discussing what happened this week and, and what it means. Before we take a break, I want to bring in this um, lawsuit that suggests that Amazon quote tricked and trapped its customers into buying Prime memberships. This is what the Federal Trade Commission alleged this week when it sued Amazon for allegedly deceptive practices, as KUOW's Monica Nicholsberg told us. The FTC charged Amazon with enrolling customers in its Prime subscription without their consent. The complaint also claims Amazon intentionally made it difficult for customers to unsubscribe from Prime. Amazon is also under investigation by the Senate Labor Committee for worker safety issues in its warehouses. A spokesperson for the company called both the lawsuit and the investigation baseless. Eli Sanders, how did Amazon allegedly trick and trap people? A couple of ways, according to the FTC complaint, which was filed in the Western District of Washington here this week. So one way was by having people sign up for Prime kind of against their will or without their knowledge um, by making signing up for Prime a part of the process to just like check out when you're buying uh, something from Amazon as not a Prime member. Or another example is making people think that they needed Prime in order to get Prime video which is is not the case. You can actually, I didn't even know this. I you didn't can, know that either. Yeah, you can get just Prime Video, but uh, Amazon's website and a lot of the features on it, the FTC alleges, made people think that they needed to buy the more expensive Prime, which then automatically renews, and Amazon makes a lot more money that way. Um, so that was that was one way. The other way was when you try to get out, when you've got Prime, or Prime's got you, depending on how you see it, <laughs> And you try to get out, you go into this process that the FTC described and even Amazon employees described as uh, the Iliad process. Yeah, and, that was their internal name for it. Right. I and, love that they're making fun of their own customers. That's <laughs> not nice. So the Iliad process, the Iliad is the ref, is a reference to a very long uh, epic poem uh, by Homer about you know a, a very long war, just uh, to sum yes. it up. And a lot of adventures along the way. The The point to Amazon seems to have been that the Iliad is long. And so is the Iliad process. So if you're trying to get out of uh, Prime membership, according to the FTC complaint, it takes you, you know, multiple different pages, multiple different clicks. It's a real odyssey. Complete uh, Odyssey. I think they might have got their Homer reference slightly off. I'm with know. you, Bill. I think it should have been the Odyssey. And I think the the... Uh, reference from the Odyssey that's kind of analogous would be the sirens. Like once you've heard <laughs> Amazon's call, that's it. You can't get out. What I like most from the FTC complaint is the description of some of the tools that Amazon allegedly used to keep people from getting out So and to uh, get them in. So there's forced action where the interface kind of forces you to sign up for Prime uh, before you can buy something else. There's interface interference where like if you're on a smartphone and you're trying to scroll down uh, to see the terms, uh -huh. you can't do it easily. Or when you're trying to hit the button that says, I don't want Prime or I want to move past this, it's so close to the buy Prime button that your <laughs> thumb is going to hit the buy Prime button instead. Uh -huh. Then there's obstruction or, and this is from the complaint, it's otherwise known as the Roach Motel technique. Mm. And this is just where like, there's things everywhere trying to distract you or um, move you away from getting out of prime misdirection, sneaking. But this is my favorite, confirm shaming. Confirm shaming. So this is where on your Iliad process or the Odyssey, I agree is a better term, uh, you come to a page that says, we just want to confirm that you really want to leave prime. 
And we would like you to remember all the good times you've had with Prime. <laughs> Are Look you at, quoting? Uh, Are you not quoting, but I'm, that I'm is describing not a, a page okay. that's in the. Yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, um, but I'm describing something that's in the complaint, and there's screen grabs of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it shows you, you know, for example, how many hours of Prime you've recently watched or how much Prime music you've listened to. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, allegedly meant to kind of. Shame you. What kind of person are you? <laughs> right. We Who had, cancels their membership? We ah, had this only, long only relationship, the, and yes. now you're leaving me. Think yeah. of all the good times. Yeah. Never mind that it was a service that this person was paying for, and now they want to end it. Plus, the complaint alleges there's all kinds of sort of tricks in ending it where – you are not easily able to end it on the day that you want to end it, but get charged for the whole month, things oh, yeah. like that. So a couple things. I am super glad the FTC is looking into this. You you outlined a whole bunch of things that are just weird and, and not okay. I don't like the the single button. So you're left. It's a single but, button to make the buy, but then that, in some cases, signs you up for Prime. So I, how many of us have gone, do I go up? Do I go down? Where is the other button that doesn't do that? So mm-hmm. I find that just worth the FTC's consideration. That said, yesterday, I canceled Prime. Five clicks. Five clicks is what it took. They never told me what a great time we had, <laughs> but um, I, I, I did. I looked, I saw the language saying, you know, you can't. You know, it'll be really difficult uh, for you if you do this. I mean, it didn't. That wasn't the exact wording, but that's how I read it. And but anyway, five clicks and I was out. Hmm. And um, so they may or may not have changed it overnight. I do not know since the FTC sort of. Notified them. Try it. I have. I'll show you the yeah, receipt. Yeah. Well, the FTC I'm, complaint I'm does say that Amazon did change it right before the lawsuit was filed, and that the FTC had been investigating Amazon, and Amazon knew this for I think a year or more previous. So um, the FTC alleges that Amazon made some changes in response. I did find the confirm shame page uh, screen grab. So it says. Thank you for being a member with us. Take a look back at your journey with Prime. <laughs> oh, no. And then if it you're gives using you, the journey word, yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> right. Think about the journey, and then it talks about the TV shows that you've watches, watched and the songs that you've listened to and the number of packages that were shipped. And then you get these choices for buttons. And one is remind me later, which, you know, oh. you're just feeling guilty, and you say, okay, I'll give this a pause, and it takes you out of the Iliad process, and then you'd have to start it over. Or keep my benefits, which sounds good. And then in the middle, continue to cancel, which I think takes you to another step in the process. So I just, I, you know, I, it's great if they get Amazon to stop doing this practice. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the larger issue is this happens in all sorts of consumer experiences. It's not just Amazon being the bad guy. Um, I mean, they are the bad guy here. But, I mean, I think about, like, trying to, you know, change a subscription that I have for a large uh, podcast-sponsored uh, consumer product <laughs> that arrives every month. Um, and it is it, it's quite like that. It's like, you know, did, did, are you sure you don't you don't want our product? Like maybe you just want to like pause it for a month. And I always end up pausing it for a month. And I've been mm. doing that for about a year. Um, I, I've had a magazine subscription recently. Or I'm sorry. No, the Criterion channel. Um, I, I'll name it. Uh, okay. It's impossible. You cannot. You just have to do dispute they ask, do it they on ask your freaking you credit card. Oh, that, that always gets yes. me when they want to know. Amazon well, definitely. No, no, no. There's no process. You have to email them, and then they don't email you back. There's no phone number. It's literally like you send an email into the ether, and it doesn't come back, and you keep paying. Wow. But and, to I be mean, clear here, Amazon does ask you, what's the reason you're leaving? Right. But I'm just saying, like, this is like also, I mean, another example is a is a newspaper that I tried to cancel. No, not the Seattle Times, uh, the Houston Chronicle. And apparently, like, I looked up examples of this, and this is apparently a, a big Texas problem, but I assume it's a problem everywhere. It is, you have to call, you have to, like, sit in a call center, wait for, you know, 77 minutes or whatever, hmm. talk to a person, and then they try to talk to you out of it for another 17 minutes. Um, so I think this is like, this is a, you know, a, a, a universal problem with things that you sign up for that are subscription based. And it's so frustrating. And there obviously needs to be some kind of 
blanket regulation, you know, beyond just sanctions on Amazon, uh, because, man, this is just this is happening all across the consumer spectrum. And Erica, I think you flagged this in our pre-show discussion, but the FTC is working on a rule right now, the click to cancel rule. Yep. And so it's a proposed rule making its way through the regulatory process, but it's meant to address exactly this problem. And it's I mean, it's so baffling to me that companies, you know, especially companies that are like selling you a subscription to a uh, I subscribe to a lot of magazines still, you know, um, a newspaper, something that is not like, you know, one time once a year expensive thing. Um, It produces such ill will in me to that company forever, forever. And I don't forget like I'm like, oh, I'm not going to subscribe to this Condé Nast product because I know they're going to make it really hard for me to get out of. So when they send you the confirmed shaming page and they're like, let's reflect on the journey. It makes me furious. You, you have a few things to say <laughs> but I about also the have, journey. I also have goodwill for companies that make it easy. And so, I mean, I, it's just, it's it's baffling to me that companies don't seem to care at all about that because I'm sure I'm not the only person that has that experience. Yeah. This may sound weird, but what this reminds me of is, do you remember when we learned that Jeff Bezos, the former CEO of Amazon, um did not pay federal income tax. And I I just thought to myself at the time, yeah, I'm sure that Jeff Bezos can afford the lawyers who can tell him, you don't have to pay any federal income tax. But why would you do that? Why would you let that come out? And in this case, why would you make fun of your customers? Why would you challenge customers? This company is thriving. I mean, it's not doing as well as it once did, but I don't think they need to play tricks to have customers buy Prime. Some Why that, get caught at it? And some some of what you're saying comes through in the FTC's uh, complaint that they filed, where the FTC actually s- says specifically Amazon had in-house and out-of-house counsel who are very familiar with FTC rules and regulations working on this. This should have gone a different way. Um, and uh, that uh, – well, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. Why? Why put us through the Trojan War? Maybe because it's maybe it's because being an Amazon Prime member is predestined by <laughs> Zeus. That like Achilles was fated to kill Hector, and you are fated to get a Toshiba fifty-inch TV for only two hundred forty-nine dollars. We can't, in three we to can't five under, hours. We can't understand these forces in three to five hours. All right, we should take a break. Uh, w- that that question of like, why are you leaving? I always I hate that question because I know if I can't just say I don't like it because then it'll come back and say, well, what do you mean you don't like it? Well, I didn't use it. Well, why didn't you? Why don't you use it then? That would solve that. Uh, it's like it's the worst expensive. breakup ever. Not with a temporary 10 percent off. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'm breaking up with you. Just hold your head high. <laughs> Move on. It is you. <laughs> and okay. it's me. All right, um, let's. Uh, I, I we we also could talk about uh, Amazon when it comes to uh, another closure of an Amazon Go store. I feel I need to take a break. Maybe we'll take up Amazon Go when we talk about the city in general. What direction is the city headed uh, of Seattle? That is after we take a break on Week in Review and come right back. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend graffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. This is KUOW's Week in Review. Did I mention we're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook because um, we're charismatic um, physically, I think we're we're handsome, and uh, so that you can see another dimension of the show if you just search KOW Public Radio on Facebook or YouTube, and you will see uh, Eli Sanders, author of the Wild West Newsletter on Substack. You'll see Public Cola's Erica Barnett and political analyst Joni Balter, and I'm Bill Radke. Yeah, they just waved to you. The there you go. Thank you. You've all waved this week. The office of Seattle's mayor told the Seattle Times that the city's senior deputy mayor is leaving. Monisha Harrell had been a court-appointed monitor of the police department's federal oversight. She was appointed to the senior deputy mayor job by her uncle, Mayor Bruce Harrell. Erica, why is Monisha Harrell leaving, and what does it say about city policy on some big uh, you know, controversial issues? 
Well, I think there's always been conflict within the mayor's office between um, the, uh, you know, I'm just going to use her first name to distinguish the heralds. Yeah. So Monisha's uh, faction and the sort of Tim Burgess, former city council member Tim Burgess, uh, who is, you know, much more of a law and order kind of guy, um, you know, somebody who thinks of jail as part of the criminal legal system that we should be utilizing to, you know, with drug dealers, drug users. And so, you know, we've seen a few things happen. I mean, one is that the city ended its relationship with community court. That was the city attorney's decision. But I think that um, it is likely that Monisha Harrell was not a fan of that decision. Community court is a therapeutic court for low-level offenders. Correct. Yeah. It basically was a a, a court that allowed people to be uh, jailed and then released uh, without charges um, and to, to do a pretty, um, you know, simple program. Um, to to get out of of charges for minor things like drug crimes, um, for a low level drug crimes, and um, you know, and I think um, right now the city is debating this law that would you know that would make it a gross misdemeanor at the local level, allow the police to um, to start arresting people for misdemeanor uh, drug use, public drug use, and simple possession of drugs. Um, and uh, and the, the mayor's put together a task force to sort of figure out what to do about this. But I think there's a lot of conflict there, with the, or there has been a lot of conflict internally. And now Tim Burgess is going to be taking uh, Monisha Harrell's position, essentially, probably with a slightly different portfolio. And so that's, you know, that is who is, is ascendant and in, in what point of view is ascendant at the mayor's office. I would just like to say from the 20,000-foot um, level, this whole change – uh, in the mayor's office is kind of duh, you know. Mayors uh, have honeymoons. Mayor Bruce Harrell has had an incredibly long honeymoon. It's something like 18 months. It is common, I think, and it, from observing many, many other mayoralties, that uh, you do you sometimes have a shakeup uh, in your staff, in your deputy mayors. There are now four deputy mayors. There will be. Uh, I think there used to be three. Uh, And from my perspective, and I think the perspective of a lot of folks in Seattle, to have one of those be more of a, you know, we're really not talking about anybody being all all sticks or all carrots. But I think, you know, you're just talking about sort of percentage or emphasis on carrots and sticks. And I I think that uh, that the folks Are we talking about drug possession arrests? Are we talking about homeless encampments? All all of that. And let's go to the law that failed five to four, and now there's a task force. Yawn. Task force has got to be one of the biggest stalling tactics for, you know, yeah, they'll they'll produce something, but it's a stalling tactic. And um, so what what I think on that vote, though, and this is really important, on that five to four vote, so... You know, it was the city's vote not to empower the the city's uh, prosecutor's office to prosecute these drug possession. Yeah. And And so so when they were talking about this law, I, I remember thinking, could they be a little clearer here about what they're actually trying to do? And so to me, there's a big difference between public drug use and individual possession. And they never really made a big deal. We're really after public drug use, which a poll shows, has 60% support in the city of Seattle. So some of what uh, this change at the top of the mayor's office, I know this sounds like sort of inside baseball for folks listening, but the I direction- do want listeners to know what's going to change. What's, well, I think, what- I think it's emphasis again. I think that, I think after this task force wastes perhaps five weeks or however many weeks it's going to be, that, that there will be um, a bill to uh, make, put some, sticks in for public drug use. And I think folks in Seattle are there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, first of all, the the legislation also bans individual possession. And and that is that is pointed. I mean, legislation does not the idea was that it incorporates this new state law that makes drug uh, public drug use and possession um, a gross misdemeanor, but they didn't incorporate all of the law. They pointedly incorporated these two things. So possession is now a, a misdemeanor. If you have illicit drugs, you are committing a gross misdemeanor, and if you get caught, you can go to jail for up to 364 days. Now that is unlikely, but that's that is the, beyond unlikely. But that is the but that is the that is the maximal penalty. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I think I think this task force, you know, I don't I'm not so ready to write it off as a stalling tactic simply because they have brought a lot of people um, who are on the ground and who have been very involved in doing this work. 
um, to the table, including people like Damon Shadid, the former uh, judge at Community Court, which Ann Davison's office, you know, essentially ended. But he's at the table with the city attorney's office, with, you know, soon to be the public defender's office. And I want to make sure we don't lose listeners sure, and all these sorry. different players yeah. here. They they want to know is this is this the departure of this deputy senior mayor? And it sounds like the elevation of this former city councilor, who you're saying is a more of a law and order guy in your words. It, you know what is that? What's going to change? Or do we know? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I so I you know I I do think that the 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 stuff I mentioned before is definitely going to change. But I think like internally, and I'm sorry if this is a little bit inside baseball, but I think it matters. I think Monisha Harrell was really respected by departments, by department heads, by the city council, by everybody because she was a listener, is a listener, um, as somebody who you know who would take back concerns, who would change her mind. And, you know, it is kind of, you know, a thoughtful, uh, a thoughtful administrator. And I'm not saying Tim Burgess is not that, but he can also be, you know, kind of a polarizing person. I mean, he's been a politician most of his life. And um, and I think that, you know, he is not going to necessarily be someone who, you know, says, oh, you know what? I was wrong all along. And I um, mean, actually, we need to change course. I think he's he's got his uh, his priorities in place and he's being elevated because of those priorities. I mean, the guy proposed making, you know, uh, a quote unquote, aggressive panhandling um, a, a crime when he was on the city council. I mean, these are pretty hardcore policies, you know, making uh, designating areas as special drug emphasis areas and, you know, and rounding up people in those, you know, hotspot areas. Is. So, you know, a, a history of being very much more law enforcement oriented. Than and as I think you Manisha told Harrell me, is. yes, as you told me, Monica, uh, I'm sorry, Erica, <laughs> uh, uh, requiring this changing the city charter to require all public spaces to be clear of encampments. Yeah, he was behind the Compassion Seattle initiative uh, that failed or that never you know, made it on the ballot. Um, that would have done that. Yeah, it yeah. would have it would have required in the city charter that all public spaces uh, be clear of encampments um, and uh, and would have done some other stuff that Bruce Harrell has claimed that he has accomplished. So that is kind of the remaining. Now, he, I don't know that he's going to be in charge of that aspect. There's another deputy mayor, Tiffany Washington, who deals with homelessness. But okay. it's a you know, it's a it's a flag, whether you consider it a red flag or a green flag just depends on your perspective. By the way, I mashed up Monisha and Erica there. You're welcome. <laughs> I like it. Anything else to add? On well, this? I'm I'm just curious as someone who's not as into the nitty gritty of City Hall at the moment as Erica and Joni are. And most of our listeners. And most <laughs> listeners. Okay. Well, hopefully I'm with most listeners and wondering then whether uh, this might signal a change in terms of more leadership rather than followership from the mayor's office on this issue. It seems like the council has been in the lead here with um, deciding whether or not they're going to follow the state law, with uh, implementing this task force. Just as a, you know, avid consumer of news, I haven't heard Mayor Harrell saying much either way about what he wants. And so maybe uh, maybe this reshuffle of the deputy mayors under the actual mayor will lead to more actual uh, proclamations, maybe, or leadership from the mayor about where he wants the city to go in response to crime and, and drug drug use and abuse and overdoses well so i think i want to get in here if i can i i think we have to look a little bit at the results in the city instead of sort of blaming people for individual things that that we maybe did or didn't like i think we have to talk about the results and we have a shining as in not shining example in san francisco if you don't have public safety you don't have a city you don't have the money to pay for the services that the good people of seattle often do pay for uh Monisha uh, Harrell is respected, but I will say, as a 15-year-old, I wrote in my personal journal, don't go into business with your family. Now, I had a family reason to say that, but why am I saying that so, you know, absolutely? Because when you disagree sometimes, it's harder, you know, to do that because of all the of all the loaded stuff there. I, I, I believe that, uh, you know, this change will, you know, to answer your question, Eli, one hopes that the mayor will sort of become clearer as he speaks about this. I think he wants to speak clearer. I think he's been trying trying to sort of balance uh, between uh, different forces and different ways of saying that Seattle does not want to become San Francisco. Seattle wants to deal 
with its public safety problem and, you know, its many other problems. And I think I think we should just kind of let it let it rip here a little bit so we can see, you know, let's all watch the mayor. What is he going to say differently? Um, and okay. and just press onward with that. Well, I, I think, um, you know, I think that the reason you're not hearing a lot of, you know, what what you would call like you said leadership. But I think that what, what, the reason you're not hearing the mayor say, I want to fight the drug war is because the mayor doesn't want to fight the drug war. And, you know, and I, I take him at his word, actually, when he says that. Now, I don't know that his actions are going to necessarily be commensurate with that. Uh, you know, I think he may end up uh, reigniting the drug war. But I think, you know, his uh, he he really does not, you know, is conflicted on this, I think. And this is not because of some deep, like, you know, friendship I have with the mayor. It's just what he said and what I've heard about the way that he, you know, kind of feels about this stuff. So um, so I think there's I think there's some conflict there that will continue to play out that's not going to be resolved by Tim Burgess being deputy mayor. OK, we will watch. We've got to move on. Uh, we're talking about uh, drug use, among other things. And that plays into this next topic. Erica, you reported that a Seattle police officer who uh, drove into and killed a pedestrian in a South Lake Union crosswalk in January was driving 74 miles per hour right before he ran into this woman. SPD says he was responding to a 911 call. What should what's important here? Was the officer following police department rules? Who who's getting the blame? What what's this about? Yeah, well he um it's it so there are a lot of rules around when you can, you know, but, go fast um, in, in response to an emergency. SPD has sort of changed um, the reasoning that they've said he was following a, a number of times. They said it was an overdose call, and then it was clear that it was, you know, and, and this report lays out exactly the details. You know, it was clear that it was a guy who was standing outside his apartment on the line with, you know, with 911 saying, you know, I'm freaking out because uh, I think I took too much cocaine. Um, so it wasn't that he needed to respond as an EMT to overturn, an, to, re, you know, reverse an overdose. Um, do we, did he know, did the officer speeding officer know that? Or well, do we according know? to the report, we do know that. Um, you know, it said that he was informed. You know, initially what the situation was, then informed that the that you know Seattle Fire was on the way, and then informed that the um, the guy was staying on the line with nine one one and was lucid and talking to them and waiting for people to show up. So. Okay. One could argue that he knew it wasn't a true emergency that would require going three times the speed limit on a 25-mile-an-hour street. Um, but not, I, And not running his siren continually. And, and chirping his siren at intersections, according to the report. But I think what's going to, you know, be more... Uh, you know, more uh, focus of the investigation is less what was in his mind and more was he following policies and practices. So he's supposed to have a siren on. It's unclear that he did have his siren on. Um, he is supposed to exercise reasonable due care in responding to emergency. And so the question is, does going 74 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone constitute due care? And was he was he looking? Because the the fact is, I mean, by the time he had entered the previous uh, the previous crosswalk before the one in which he struck um, this young woman, her fate was sealed because he was going so fast at that point he could not have slowed down, and he he only braked for two thirds of a second before striking her. And the report itself um, is is quite grisly, um, and that's one reason I have not published it online. Um, but, you know, it is it is a very, a very sad story. And I'll say he's on he's on leave. I think it's um, entirely conceivable, if not probable, that he'll be fired. And the case is now at the King County Prosecutor's Office. Yeah, it's not up to the city. It's the king. It's the decision to prosecutors in the King County Prosecutor's Office's hands. But the city sent it to them. And, right. Okay, right. Yeah, and so that was that was a decision by SPD. I see. To say, you know, we have most likely they decided that they had probable cause, oh. and so now it's in their hands. Okay, so it, so is there any um, takeaway? I guess it's too early to tell. I mean, are, are we saying that that the system worked or the system didn't work or somewhere in between? Yeah, I, I think that you know. It, The system didn't work because somebody was was hit and killed by a police officer driving way too fast um, and and was killed in a crosswalk. Um, So the system didn't work. But I think that, you know, if this officer is uh, is prosecuted, is fired. I mean, I think it's you know, it's very hard for me to imagine an officer serving jail time. But regardless, I don't think this says a whole lot about the system because I think that SPD can point at this person and say this was one bad apple. This was one bad actor. He was new to the force. He joined in, you know, 2020. 
and um, and we've we've taken the right action, and it looks good for us. But I but I don't think that that says a whole lot about the system as a whole. Okay. I just want to say big congratulations to you, Erica, for breaking this story. It was literally nowhere else. So that that's that independent local reporting. <laughs> yes, that we all seem to uh, love and not able to pay enough for. Um, mm-hmm. So I have a question though, and look. No cop wants to kill somebody while they're on the way to supposedly help somebody else. And I appreciate it in the story. You you talked about our rules for, you know, for gunning the police car. But what do other cities do? Does anybody know that? Like, you know, how could we have a, a rule that's in place maybe somewhere else that would have prevented this? Because we're going to need to get to that. I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to the question about what other cities do, but I don't, I don't think that we are like out on the cutting edge on this, nor are we, um, you know, falling uh, dangerously behind other cities, as far as I know, in terms of, you know, exercising due care. The the quest, the problem is, you know, we need to define what due care is, and that is, that is very hard to define, and it's all subject to police union negotiations. I mean, as everything is. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, I mean, it is really a matter of changing policies and procedures if we want to prevent things from happening um, like this tragedy again. Okay, we got to take a break again. I think the King County Prosecutor's Office is expected this summer to make a decision on whether to uh, bring charges against this officer. That's right. right? Should be soon. Okay. Uh, KUOW's Week in Review. That's Erica Barnett with Eli Sanders and Joni Balter. We're going to take a short break and uh, start steaming toward the end of this episode of Week in Review. Stick around. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. This week, a foundation released its annual report on child well-being, and the news site Axios Seattle noted that in Washington state, it costs more to put a toddler in daycare for a year than it does to pay a Husky student's tuition. That's a statewide average. Your child care costs may vary. Eli Sanders, I assume your conclusion is that child care workers are being paid too much money. <laughs> no. Oh. Uh, but as a parent, I did find this uh, extremely upsetting and completely backwards. I mean, you should not uh, be paying more to put your child through daycare at a time, you know, when your child is young, most families are less financially um, stable or have less of a cushion than maybe when the child is older and ready to go off to college. Plus, you've had 18 years to potentially save for it. Um, And so just the idea that it would be more expensive to pay for daycare than a year at the UW represents a a very large systemic failure in my mind. It's not that child care workers are being paid too much, however. And, you know, in our pre-show discussion, it was pointed out the city of Seattle actually has been putting out, I'm not sure what they call it, a grant of some sort Mm -hmm. to child care workers to help retain them because it's so hard to keep child care workers. But that, again is a system in failure, that the government has to come in and help private daycare entities pay their employees enough to keep them. And so I can't tell you all the failures that are leading to this, but we do often talk about, you know, failures of the free market and so on. This, I think, is a failure to intervene in the market in a way that makes sense for families and children. The reason that the University of Washington costs less than daycare is that the state subsidizes or pays for tuition at the University of Washington at a rate higher than it's subsidizing daycare. So maybe, as others have pointed out, we should take some of that money that's coming in through the capital gains tax, you know, a more uh, powerful gusher of money than anyone imagined that's meant to go to education, maybe not child care, but maybe some of it gets redirected uh, at some point toward this problem and the state can help make child care as affordable as the University of Washington is. Yeah, I mean, as the as the non-child haver. <laughs> yeah, here. that's right. How do you feel about that? You know, I mean, I think it's outrageous. I, I think that, you know, that the failure of the free market is that things like child care should not be determined by the free market. I mean, it just should not be a free market question. 
um, that, you know, child care providers and parents have to decide amongst themselves, you know, how, who gets more screwed. Um, I mean, that's just it's it's outrageous. I, I did want to you, you pointed out in our pre-show discussion that um, some Republicans are saying that taxpayers should uh, give parents money and let them decide if they want to stay home with their kids. That's right. And, um, you know, I am all for uh, women who take up, you know, who do the bulk of that work getting paid for their labor. Uh, I, I'm very surprised to hear that Republicans are on board with the idea of paying fair wages for housework, uh, for, you know, for child care, for doing the laundry for cooking the meals, for running all the errands, for being the admin for the entire house, for being the project manager. But if they are truly on board, then welcome to the party, friends. I have no reason to be as tired as I am at the end of the day, apparently. (laughs) Indeed. Um, I like how you uh, caught them in their own sort of like Iliad process there. They (laughs) they clicked the button for Republicans funding, I think, uh, at homeschooling, and you got them to pay for it. It was more Odysseus. Odyssean, I meant to say. Yes, yes. Uh, Okay. Uh, Is there anything, uh, I was going to say, anything being done about this? We mentioned some things. There's some, the city of Seattle's making some more payments out of, I think, out of the Jumpstart tax. Yep, uh, jumpstart and uh, COVID, before that, COVID ARPA ah, funds. Right, yep. right. So you're not saying, uh, Erica, hey, I chose not to have kids because they're expensive. Why should, I, why should I pay my tax money so that other parents can not stay home with their kids? I mean, I actually think that the lifestyle that I'm allow- able to have, uh, I should be subsidizing <laughs> other people more. Is its own reward? I mean, in a way, like, yeah. look, I'm not taking on a lot of the burdens of society by not having kids. And, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, that is something that I would much rather subsidize than a lot of the stuff that I pay taxes for. Also, and I know this show has talked about this a lot, but early childhood education connects to all of the problems that we have been talking about for an hour here on the show, including uh, crime and the drug abuse and overdose problem in the city right now. And so to the extent that children are well cared for and parents are well supported in uh, children's early years, that benefits everyone for the child's lifetime and beyond. That's absolutely true. I'm glad you pointed that out because that re- there really is a direct connection and we should recognize that. Making us sad right now, making us frown, <laughs> making us frown right now is that we only have a minute left in the show. Is there anything making us smile on the other hand? Well, as I as I told you guys before, I have a curveball, which is a sports metaphor, I'm Whoa. told. Uh, I am going to see the Ballard FC tonight. Uh, take on the take on Oli Town, which I That sounds just, like soccer. It's uh it is uh, it is the American football. Yes. Uh and uh, I'm going to see them at the Interbay Stadium tonight. I'm very excited about that. All right. So, uh yeah, I'll 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 be a soccer expert the next time I come on your show, Bill. Ballard FC. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Make Me Smile is uh, Pride this weekend and the weather, which looks great all weekend long. Lovely. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg in a cage fight. <laughs> in a cage I fight. I am so into this. If it's real, I think it's a joke. Yeah, they've been uh, they've been tweeting about uh, physically fighting one another. It's too good to be true. Sure. Yeah. I As mean, someone isn't, isn't Zuckerberg like an MMA fighter? He's himself? a jujitsu or jujitsu uh, trained in some way. And uh, to his credit, Musk said, "I'm going to pull the walrus on him." My my move is the walrus, <laughs> where I just lie down on top of my opponent, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. There was someone on Twitter who said, "That finally is an Elon Musk offering that I would pay for." <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, uh, we got to go. Erica Barnett co-founded and edits Publicola. And Joni Balters, a political analyst and columnist. And Eli Sanders, besides being the Gates Scholar at the UW Law School, is the author of the Wild West Newsletter on Substack. Thank you for being the show. Great to see you all. Thank Thank you. you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. I'm Bill Radke. Thanks to our producer, Kevin Kniestet, and running the board, Bernard Ouellette. We're out of here. We'll talk to you again next week on Week in Review.